0: So today we're going to talk about food insecurity, which is the very technical name for what a simpler person might call fear of going hungry. And it's a big problem in this country and in this state. Food insecurity is what the FDA calls it when people don't know where their next meal is coming from. And that affects a bit over 10 percent of the population, about 40 million Americans in 2017. If the food insecure had a state, it would be more populous than California. If just food insecure children did, it would be about the population of Pennsylvania. This is a problem that has a ton of smart, capable people and a fair amount of resources being pointed at it.
1: If you look at the percentage, after a decade of really very stellar work by many, many organizations, the needle doesn't change. And this is really strange. This is why we study this area.
0: Welcome to the index a podcast about economics, psychology, and the hidden business of everything from Rice University's Jones Graduate School of Business. I'm your host, Saul Elbine, and today we're going to use that food security NGO paradox as a way to discuss how to solve big, intractable social problems. With me in the studio is Tim Taliaferro.
2: Delighted to be with you, Saul.
0: At South by Southwest, while staving off his own food insecurity with a steady diet of food truck tacos, he caught up with Doug Shuler, Doug studies the intersection between governments, corporations, and NGOs on matters from social welfare to lobbying and corruption. He and Tim were talking about how food security NGOs might be able to put themselves out of business. Tim, there's this paradox at the center of the food security movement. People keep giving out food, but the number of people that they have to give them to doesn't seem to be going down. Why is that?
2: Well, I want you to imagine a jigsaw puzzle that doesn't quite connect. And the story Doug tells starts with this poor neighborhood off Scott Street in Houston, a food desert, where people don't have access to fresh food within a mile. So, how do you solve that?
0: Well, I would assume if there's a big group of people who need food, I could put in a grocery.
1: Well, it's actually harder than it sounds. So if you're familiar with Houston, just south of University of Houston, between U of H and Six Ten, there's a, a store. It's called Pie Burns. Now, has anyone heard of Pie Burns? Any yeah. Houston
2: people, no.
1: Yeah, yeah. No one's heard you go of to Pie Boston Burns. Cry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Has anyone heard of H E B? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, that's a crap so, so yeah, so, so there we go. So so really, the mayor's office and all these, and they convened very like all the leaders of Houston, and they they wanted H E B, they wanted Kroger, they wanted you know they would take Randalls, um, and none of those big retailers wanted the place. It doesn't it doesn't fit their M O. So the city uh, funded it. The city used federal money. They essentially paid half the capex for the store. It's a nice store, but it doesn't look like, I mean, I was, I was born in the 60s, so it looks like in, in Sacramento, California. So it looks like the kind of store that mom used to take me to in the late 60s and early 70s. That's not what grocery stores look like anymore, right? They, you know, they're, they're like the place to be seen with all these cool hip people like in this audience. So anyway, um, it struggles, right? And so you think, why does it struggle? It's a nice store. It's got produce, it's in this area.
2: Well, so why is it struggling? Well, did you hear the part where I said they asked the people in the neighborhood what they wanted? No, did I miss it? No, they didn't ask.
1: Well, first of all, I, a lot of people don't want to shop there. They want to shop it at H-E-B. And there's an H-E-B if you just drive farther. It's not outside of the food desert.
0: Hmm, so are they solving the wrong problem?
2: They're trying to solve the right problem, but there are a lot of factors to consider.
1: It could be the attractiveness of the area. It could be whether the metro bus stops outside the the store. It could be whether uh, people have the time to cook, right? Again, next time you go to the market, you see how many prepared things are in that market. It's unbelievable. Why? Because no one has time to cook right cuz you're like got to listen to this lecture and then yeah yeah then rush to some other event. And so it's so many different things that are tied together and the challenge has been if you look at these social problems they're very interconnected. But if I'm an intervention that just puts a grocery store, if I'm an intervention that just puts a farmers market or if I'm an intervention that just teaches a kids cooking class, it doesn't connect with the others.
0: Oh So he's saying they're all doing their thing, but they don't quite link
2: up. Right. So think about when you go home, you want to make dinner. Think of all the things that you need. You need to get to the store. You need to know what to buy. You need to be able to bring it home, and you need to know what to do with it. And if you can't go to the store every day, you need some way to store or refrigerate some of that food. You need a stove to cook on, which means you need gas and running water. And
0: as you say each of these things, like a kind of bullet point, I'm hearing a cash register pinging in the back
2: of my head. Right, all that stuff does cost money and time.
1: I needed income, I needed knowledge, how to how to like cook that meal. And, it, and it's a lot of things. And I think when you have income, you have more slack, you can create more slack. When you have low income, it's harder to create that slack. And I think that's one of the reasons why, again, we see a lot of noble efforts in Houston. We see uh, an NGO doing convenience store remakes. We see the county government driving some little produce truck around every once in a while. So
2: Doug, why why did HEB know better? It sounds like they they looked at it and said, no, this isn't right for us.
0: Okay, so going back to the problem above, wrap it up for me. Why doesn't H-E-B just build a store there? Well, think about
2: it, why does H-E-B put a store
1: anywhere? Well, to make money, presumably. Yeah, how do you make money?
0: You sell products
1: to people. Uh Uh-huh, what kind of people? Uh, People who have money. (laughs) People who have money, thank you very much, right? So stores usually work on something called a catchment area. They have very big data analytics, where they run stuff through, but it's mostly looking for customers where they think there's a lot of disposable income. That's why when you look at at wealthier parts of towns, you see a lot of grocery stores uh, competing for those customers and in poorer parts of towns, you just don't. And and it's their business model, right? This is the economies of scale business model. This is what we teach in business school. I don't teach those courses, but my colleagues do. Um, And that's why HBEB doesn't want that part of town. It's not like they don't like the people, but they they like people with money to buy product, period.
0: So here it seems we're starting to get to the core of the problem. Food costs money. Good food can cost more money. Purveyors of good food want to put their stores where they'll make money. And while the for-profit food system is very well integrated, which is fine if you have money, the non-profit one isn't, which is bad if you don't.
2: Right, businesses, are remarkably clear-eyed. They're good at solving a business problem, how to make money. For all their best intentions, NGOs don't have that same iron-hard price motivation to focus on what it is that their consumers really want and need. They can stay in business indefinitely doing things that don't really, really move the needle, so long as their sources of income, their donors or whatever, support their mission.
0: So, what did these people off of, say, Scott Street actually want
2: for themselves? I mean, did anybody ask them? Did they care about food deserts? Sure, they cared, but it wasn't at the top of their list. Doug and his team did focus groups, and they asked about this.
1: We ran uh, focus groups in the third ward with users. We wanted to hear what they had to say, and what they had to say was grocery was not their biggest concern. Their biggest concern were empty lots and guys hanging out and do- stray dogs and broken streetlights. Uh, that's what was gonna make that part of town better, not plopping in a HEB. And kind of from all these experiences, I mean, I think the thing we see is that all these different interventions kind of aren't, aren't aggregating to any, anything. And maybe, and maybe when you talk about a solution, let me, let me, yeah. uh, let me tell you something that the food bank's doing. So Houston Food Bank has a very, very interesting program. It's called Food for Change. So a couple years ago, if you're familiar with it, the Houston Food Bank gave away more food than any other food bank in the United States. Let me ask a poll, if I can. Is that a good thing? Who thinks that's a good thing, that the Houston Food Bank's giving away more food than ever? What? It's
0: good, but it's also sad. Yeah, it's bad. If you can't hear, someone in the audience just yelled out, it's good, but it's sad.
2: Yes, it is. And that question really gets to the heart of what we're talking about today. Because with a for-profit corporation hitting a sales mark, that's great news. But if you're giving out food to people who can't afford it, it's not better that more people need the food. It's not better that you're giving out ever more food.
0: They say uh, never wish the doctor or the undertaker a good year.
1: So what the food bank started doing is they started thinking, why are people accessing our services, right? So again, most NGOs, right, most of the nonprofits in this area, they go to their donors. I just pivot to my donors and I say, I'm Doug. I give away meals, and last year I gave away a hundred. This year we're going for 120. Won't you support my effort, right? Think about how many pitches you get from nonprofits who do that. And you think, wow, that's great. He's he's gonna increase his, his meals he's giving out 20%.
0: So it sounds like we need a different approach. We want to help people
2: graduate out of the system. Exactly right, so here's one to think about. The CEO of the food bank in Houston starts thinking about this problem. Who do we actually serve? And they have this one really interesting program they discover at Lone Star College, which, if they get right, can get people out of the system, out from needing to go to the food bank at all, because they become food secure.
1: So Lone Star College, a big community college system, um, lots of first-generation college kids, lots of people from families where, you know, no one really went to college like easy to get in, but it's also easy to get out. And we know there's really strong data to show that there, there's correspondence between income and getting out of these systems. There's also nice data to show there's a lot of association between finishing your degree and getting a job. So one of the things they're finding is like, a lot of young people drop out of college and they drop out of college for financial reasons. And Food becomes a flex. They did research to show that food is a flex. People always pay their rent, because if you don't pay your rent, you get kicked out. You pay your center point or like you know, you can't charge your iPhone. Right. You pay for your iPhone, of course. And then then you look at everything else. So what do people flex on? They flex on medical. That's why we have such a bad situation here. They flex on school sometimes. I'm just gonna I'm gonna drop a class and get $300 back. And they flex on food. Brian Green is the CEO of the food bank who who's actually knows our, our work really well. So what Brian did is he created a program called Food for Change. It's on the Houston Food Bank website. It's a very interesting program where if you stay in school, so if these are our three students who are like in our treatment group and they're taking let's say 12 hours uh, toward their degree, we will give them essentially a voucher for healthy food worth, let's say, $100 a month that they can redeem. And let's not get into the details of the redemption. There's some problems with that. But, but, they, but what we're trying to do is say, look, if we put food to these people, and let's just say these are three random people we put food to, if we target our food, we're gonna kick them out of the system. Know why? They're going to finish their degrees, and they're going to have the, a, a great job in Austin. And they don't have to use the services. And that's the kind of thinking we, we have to have. The food bank's trying to do it. It's still most of their business is giving away food. But we don't have that, we don't have that kind of thinking enough by like, these social services organizations.
2: So it sounds like a certain amount of it is just putting the people in the front of it, rather than operating by category.
1: No, that's right. I think there tends to be a lack of attention, to. We call them users in our, in, in our report because we think it's more neutral. But they might be clients, they might be customers. But if these are three kind of people we're kind of treating, uh, I, I, I think there has to be much more attention to them and their, their wants. And, and they might be in different situations. But the challenge is, again, for a lot of NGOs, that means it's really hard to scale right because what's really sexy in the in the business and NGO world is scalability right so if one of our you know again if one of our hypothetical students here ha- has a, a special need one of the easiest ways to deal with it in terms of scaling is to kick her out right because she doesn't scale very well and that's really hard to do
0: so are these industries having the same kind of
2: competitive pressure that private enterprises well In short, if nonprofits are competing for money, it's harder to get them to collaborate.
1: Yeah, so nonprofits compete with each other. Rice University competes with other universities. We don't benefit if U of H or UT gets the money. So it's a real problem. One of the things we talk about in the paper, and we've had pushback from organizations, is probably most of you have heard about win-win, right? And the idea behind win-win is of course that it's gonna be good for my organization, we're gonna give out more meals, but it's gonna make like the community better, right? But what we really argue for is sometimes what we, you need is a lose-win. Sometimes organizations have to sacrifice what they're capable of doing to enhance something else. So his model is,
2: nonprofits have to be more like open source organizations where collaboration is everything. Non-zero-sum. If nonprofits don't collaborate, if they get super efficient, what happens is people suffer.
1: If I have some knowledge, why would I hold it? I'm trying to supposedly make Houston a better place. If I have relationship with Tim, and I I don't know this gentleman's name, but let's say he wants to talk to Tim, why wouldn't I share my contacts with him? In the business school, when we teach for-profit private schools, I know exactly why. Because there's value in that relationship that I can appropriate for me, right? That's how you get an A in the strategy class. Appropriate that value for me. But in the nonprofit space, we say, it, it sh- we should be just creating value, and if part of my activities can create value, you know, for the good of this event, that's what I need to do, even if it's not good for me. And one of the one of the ancillaries is potentially I go away.
0: So this is the old vision of the nonprofit that puts itself out of business.
2: Yeah, the the thought is like MD Anderson Cancer Clinic, their little sign has cancer scratched out which is sort of this aspirational goal, right? We're gonna get so good at curing cancer that one day you won't need an MD Anderson cancer clinic. Or the other really popular one is the March of Dimes, which was all about polio and addressing polio. Well, polio, they eradicated it, and yet the March of Dimes is still around.
1: So in Houston, for example, in the veterans' services community, there's an organization called Combined Arms. And some of you have maybe heard of a backbone organization. So, So what this organization is, it's a 501c3. It's a nonprofit. But instead of giving out services, right? Because again, one of the problems is funders love services. If you give to Rice University, we just have my boss here. He wants you to give him money. Right. So he can teach classes and he can offer programs. Right. The more programs and the more classes, the better. Instead of having a services organization what the, what the backbone does is it is, is it's like a symphony conductor. It doesn't give services at all.
0: So the backbone organization is like the coordinator that provides structure to this larger um, constellation of organizations.
2: Absolutely. Each of these nonprofits have their own things that they'll work on. The coordinator can come in and marry up all of those so that when you put them all in in play together, they're actually getting much more done and helping more people than they would if they were not coordinated.
1: And so now I can know, okay, I've got my food insecure students over here, but I've got my food insecure student who actually, because she's in the tennis shoe category, she also needs this additional service and we can refer her to the person over here who deals with tennis shoes. And, and, and we have a chance at the system level to see how well those referrals are going. So it has kind of two very nice benefits. It focuses on clients, and it has a very good kind of quality assurance that this organization is doing what it's supposed to do, and if it's not, we have metrics to see, and we can kick them out, and we can put in another one.
2: So are there enough backbone organizations in Houston, or this is this is part of your prescriptive?
1: Yeah. Thought here. Yeah. Prescriptive thought. There's very few.
0: It's hard. So as in episode three, our interview with Peter Rodriguez about the dismal state of medicine teaching in the arts, it strikes me that what we have here is a place where there is a public need that private industry, in this case nonprofits and their donors, has not been able to solve. So what's the role then for government here?
2: This topic kind of touched a little nerve with Doug. One problem, he said. Is politicians who are sometimes driven by different motivations you must spend a lot of time with politicians or observing politicians with your research interests of the collision of business and, and public policy do politicians help or hurt more with these kinds of problems
1: mmm hurt why well i think the challenge with the so so with the elected officials i think the challenge has been this and 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 actually probably the second example of a bad intervention like i said is is kind of probably harris county's food truck so i don't know if you know how harris county works there's a county judge and then there are actually four other judges who are who who have districts right so they have territories so imagine our little our little room here, right? Here's quadrant one, two, three, and four. Well, those judges get elected by the people. Like, if I'm in quadrant two, I need the majority of quadrant two to do it. So it could be that in quadrant two, we don't have any food insecurity problems. It's really, the problem is this side of the county, but the county commissioner gets all mad at the kind of the the, the everyday kind of agency people if they don't drive their truck over here. So in one way, you know, because of political pressures, you're really diluting the possible kind of effectiveness of the solution, right, because of this. Also, we know, I mean, we know that politicians like to stand in front of nice shiny things, right? So they very much like things like subsidized grocery store, subsidized, um, you you know, a farmer's market, a community garden. Um, but don't they like like nice
2: streets and sidewalks and lights that work? I mean, can can you reach them some way with I, this?
1: I, I, I think so. It probably just needs to be kind of uh, my sense again, and maybe this is why we need some mechanism to keep the collective together. Is that they're reached kind of in more piecemeal ways?
0: Uh so we would have something like those backbone organizations or you could call them food security councils or something like that. The
2: key is cooperation and someone has to coordinate it.
1: The collective action problem to some extent is the tragedy of the commons, right? That although we want this to be a, a, a great city, we want this to be a great neighborhood, it's in my best interest to just do whatever I'm gonna do that doesn't necessarily contribute to it, right? It might be just like, I'm, I'm, not, gonna volu- I'm not gonna clean up after this event, because I'd rather do something else. And, 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 and this is the challenge.
0: Of course, I lived in cooperative housing for a long time when I was in college at the University of Texas. And I'd add, people will clean up, but they have to feel empowered, and they have to feel like it makes a difference and they have to feel like there is a community which is going to make them uphold the standards.
2: Yeah, and he's saying this is a place where a lot of that isn't true. So they have to build that kind of structure, like the one you lived in in college. They have to build rules and norms, and they have to get it coordinated. So is he saying that there's no role for the public sector? He's saying it can have a role, but it, it can also be tricky.
1: I think that there's no doubt about it, the public sector, the governmental sector can play big roles. I mean, the most important thing in food insecurity in the United States is WIC and SNAP. And these are the food stamp program, right? If you look at the amount of dollars that are going into low income people through WIC and SNAP, a federal program, right? It's huge. And even if we look internationally, I mean, the country that's made the biggest progress in poverty reduction, China. It's the state. So I do think there's a role for public policy, but I also think that there's there's some weird incentives in policy. Um, Well, there's some incentives in policy that can lead to some outcomes that maybe are less than ideal in some situations.
0: So what might that look like?
2: One area, and we touched on this earlier, that Doug suggested was transportation. Because the whole problem with the food desert, remember, isn't just that the neighborhood doesn't have food, it's that people can't get to the food.
0: Either because it's too far or just because they can't afford it. Either or both.
1: We'd like to see organizations work together more. Like, let's say it might be the metro, like the bus. Um, It could be maybe thinking about public policies to subsidize Uber rides or Lyft rides. for, for low-income individuals. It could be, uh, I teach a course uh, at, at Rice, and students get embedded in these different organizations, and we have a startup who's trying to figure out how can we do food delivery to Wixnap people. So if you think about all these, what, what's it called? Instacart or mm-hmm. I, yeah. all this Instacart Favor stuff. Instacart, yeah, yeah, this is for high-income individuals. It's expensive. Could we, could we bring that to poor people, right, who are kind of SNAP wick? You know, I was
0: on SNAP for a little bit after college when I wasn't making any money as a freelancer. And it kept me healthy. And when it got to be too much trouble to re-up, I knew I didn't need it anymore. But I did have a car, which meant I could get to HEB. And it would have been really tough if I hadn't had that.
2: Right. And so that's one place where the solution comes from figuring out what problem you're trying to solve.
0: I will say, I do love hearing stories about local political gossip. Did he have any more good ones?
2: Yeah, he had a good one about a company called Joe V's, which is like a small H-E-B, kind of Trader joes full service, but smaller, limited selection.
1: And, and and so they're turning like crazy. They're actually like, the produce is, is first rate. As a matter of fact, again, if you download the uh, report that just came out today on Kinder Institute, the cover is of a Joe V's. That's a Joe V's produce. And you'll see it's absolutely beautiful looking looking produce. So that's one, it's one of the things. So, so let me tell you a story about Joe V's in Houston. So there was a lot of pressure. I don't know if anyone's familiar in Houston. One of the neighborhoods called Sunnyside. It's just south of, uh, south of 610 Loop. Uh, kind of Scott, Calhoun, 288. It's a very low-income part of Houston, historically African-American neighborhood, lots of empty lots. And a lot of the community leaders and politicians were really pushing very hard to get a grocery store there. And HEB decided they would put a store in Sunnyside, and then they said it's going to be Joe V's. And the politicians went nuts. The city council members got really mad. They said, this is not fair. The, you know, like, like if it was in River Oaks, they'd get a HEB, that's correct. And there was a, so much community resistance between the community leaders and the politicians that HEB scrubbed the store. So again, I mean, I, I, you know, from my point of view, that was a really bad thing that the local politicians did. Um, Again, if if they took time to understand the business model of an HEB or a Kroger, it was clear that given the demographics of Sunnyside, and I'm not saying everything's forever, right? Think about some sexy mall in the 70s that like, you know, now they don't even know what to do with the poor little Macy's and Sears in there, right? You know, the the great stores of the 70s. Um, It's not like Sunnyside's forever, but right now, Uh, You know, to ask a for-profit retailer to plunk down 70,000 SKUs, it's not going to happen. So I think it's a great example of bad politics.
0: Maybe. But on the other hand, it makes me think of a lady from a food security organization that I interviewed once in A-Leaf, which is right next to Sunnyside. And she said she never gives out expired food, even if it's still good, because she said people will eat it if they're hungry, but they're going to
2: know how you think about them. Hmm yeah you know preserving people's dignity can be just as important
0: and it seems like that might be a place where in the jovis example that was a more important need for the community than the people who were outside might have realized
2: excellent point
0: so our takeaways are in a system where nonprofits have to compete for fundraising it's hard for them to really solve the problems that they are ostensibly set out to solve the military care for veterans provides a good model of what's called a backbone organization in which all of the groups and agencies and councils have a sort of managerial organization that coordinates between them, moving around information and resources. And it has to be clear to us, finally, what problem we're actually trying to solve and what the people in question actually see as their own needs.
2: Yeah, this came through really strong from him. you got to involve the people who are affected by this. You have to take their opinions, you have to get their input, their counsel. If you just solve it for them without talking to them, chances are you're not actually going to solve anything.
0: And make sure to listen to our next episode, which is a bold pitch for Texas as the new American
2: technological and industrial heartland. It sort of rounds it out in a really holistically nice picture where you've got Fintech and and actually gaming esports in Dallas, and you have tech, you know, generalistic tech in Austin, and big industries and corporations in Houston, and military in San Antonio, and you can sort of view those philosophically as like really neatly fitting pieces of the of the puzzle. That that yeah, geographically are not any further away uh, from each other than than Stanford and San Francisco. Until next time, thank you, Saul.
0: The Index is a production of Rice Business in collaboration with Texas Monthly Studio. I'm Melissa Reese, executive producer. Our show is engineered and produced by Brian Standifer, who also wrote our theme music. Our moderators are Tim Taliferro and Carlos Sanchez. The Index is written and hosted by Saul Elbine. For more business insights, visit business.rice.edu
2: backslash wisdom.